right, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody today, and it was great to see everybody yesterday that came out for Lake Day. It, outside of being extremely hot, it was an awesome, awesome day to, to be together, to see these baptisms. We've got more baptisms coming up September 12th. I do want to encourage you, if you've not followed the Lord in believer's baptism and you've given your heart and life to Christ and you know that you're a born-again Christian, we want you to be obedient and to follow Him in baptism. So we are having that service on September 12th. All you got to do is call the office, uh, make some contact with them. They would love to uh, get that, that signed up for you. Uh, we do it both services. Uh, we'll have a baptismal right over here. And so if you've not been baptized, but you know Christ, you need to take that step of obedience. So we look forward, hopefully, to seeing more people who are taking that step in obedience uh, to be baptized. Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And boy, talk about a change in the course of, of a man's life that we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 11. To this point, we have been talking about David. We've shared all of his victories. We've shared even some of the outside things that have been distressing to him and challenging to him as he has waited to ascend the throne and, and for God to do what he promised to, to do in his life. And we come to this chapter, and it is a shocking chapter in the storyline that we are looking at, because here is a man who God described. This is not what I said about David. This is not man's testimony about David. When we say that David was a man after God's own heart, those are God's words. That is what God had to say about King David. And yet we find today one of the most tragic stories in all of the Bible. Because we look at this story and we ask the question, how in the world could something like this, how could David's life turn? How could we see it go on the trajectory that it's about to go on when he is such a man of God, when he seems to be just winning victory after victory after victory. And today we're going to talk about the giant that slayed David. If you look at two stories in Scripture that we think about life of David, if I were to walk around and ask all of you, what do you know about King David? Most of you, if we, especially if we hadn't been going through the book, maybe if I asked this a few months ago, I hope you know more uh, after what we've done. But before, certainly, many people would say, well, I can think of two things about David. They would remember that it was David who slew Goliath. It was David who, when the children of Israel were there fighting a battle, that they were being mocked and God was being mocked. And here was this young man who took a sling and five stones, right? And he slew a giant. You would secondly say, well, David was the one that committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was the one that killed Uriah, her husband, to cover up the sin that he had committed. And what we fail to realize is that really it's the tale of two giants. Those stories are important because in one of those stories, we find that David slew the giant. In the second story, we find that there is a giant that slayed David. And folks, I want to tell you today, this is an important message. It's an important message for the church today in America. It's an important message for us today right here in Hepzibah because many of us don't realize that we are still fighting giants today, and, and not nine-foot men. In fact, the giants that most of us are having to battle, the giants that are the greatest threat to us, it's like Goliath. That is a giant that is outside of David. That's not the giant that slew him. It's the giant inside of us that we battle day in and day out that is threatening to kill us that is threatening to destroy us. 
As we get into the story this morning, I want you to know that in David's life, to this point, he's not lost a battle. From what we can see in Scripture, every time he stepped onto the field of battle, he came off that, he came off that field victorious. However, when he entered into this arena of battle, the battle that is inside of himself, this battle for the heart, he found that there was a giant more powerful than Goliath could have ever hoped to have been. And that's how we witness today a mighty man of God being defeated. You may not realize it, but sin, it's a constant threat. When most of us think about the battles and the giants that we face, it's kind of unfortunate because most of us think of the giants as being out there. We think, you know what, the things I'm going to have to overcome in life, the things that are going to threaten me the most, we think of sickness. We think of things that are outside of us like suffering. We think of things like sorrow or poverty. We think about pain. And we think that those are the things that are going to give us the most trouble in life. I want to show you today that the same giant that was out to kill David is out to kill you. And when I say the same giant, the giant takes many forms because ultimately the giant that we're facing is sin, right? And it looks different with everybody in this room, but I would declare to you today that if statistics are correct, the amount of people in this room who are struggling with the giant of pornography, it's huge. The number of people in this room who are struggling with the giant of fornication, sex outside of marriage, inappropriate relationships, physical relationships outside of marriage, the number of affairs that happen inside of churches. Lust is a giant in our culture today. You can't turn on a television. You can't listen to the radio. You, you can't go on the internet without being completely inundated with the same giant that David was facing. And I will say to you, I believe with all my heart, one of the greatest sins that is occurring within the church, it is sexual sin. And the same thing that destroyed David is on the verge of destroying many of us. Let me read to you the story, and I want you to listen very carefully to it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David sent to Joab and said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. He didn't go to his own house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your own house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah, they're staying in temporary shelters, my Lord and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also. And tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and David made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he didn't go to his own house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it at the, by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was that Joab kept watch on the city and he put Uriah at the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you finish telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city? To fight, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? And you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us. And they came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance to the gate. Moreover, the archers, they shot your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Three things I want to share with you about sin this morning. The giant that threatens us. Number one, sin is a constant threat. You see, we see a story here that really is quite amazing because it just goes from victory to utter defeat and, and literally from one chapter to the next. And we look at a story like this and our, our question is, how could things go so wrong so fast? We're asking the wrong question. You see, for most of us, the reality is we don't realize that sin, it's progressive. 
that the nature of what happened when we look at the life of David, it didn't happen in chapter 11. It actually began way further back in his life than chapter 11. For most of us, we don't realize that it's the sin that we make, not just the big ones, it's the small decisions day after day. If you've been at this church long, you've heard me say every decision we make, it matters. Every choice we make, it takes us a direction. It, It puts us on a journey. And there are no small decisions. There are no small sins. Because the truth is, every one of them, every step that we take in this life, it's leading us a direction either towards God or away from God. Towards His purposes or away from His purposes. And the reality is, everyone in here, we know the constant battle of sin, that it rages within us every single day. The temptations, they are always there. The choices to do what is wrong, what we know to be wrong, it is always there. And so we ask the question, how did this giant obtain the power necessary to overcome A man who was after God's own heart. How did David lose his senses? How did he become so intoxicated with gratifying his fleshly desires? It's a question we need to ask today. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you find that probably this is where the issue began with David. It's actually hidden... And it's not hidden. It's really there. It's plain. We, we just we, we saw it and we kind of tilted our head a little bit and thought that's weird. But we moved right on with the story because that's what we tend to do when we see texts like this. Because in chapter five, verse 13, when it's recounting how David has finally become king after all the struggles, after all the battles, he's finally become king. Saul is dead. Not only has Judah accepted him as king, but now all of Israel has accepted him as king and they coronate him as king. And then you get to chapter 5, verse 13, and there is this little sentence. It says, Meanwhile, David took more concubines and he took more wives from Jerusalem. You see, what's hidden in that sentence is the fact that David has a lust problem. You see, it's easy for a king to justify his lust. All the kings of that day would have had multiple wives. And remember, the people of God said, we want a king like every other king. It's what everybody was clamoring for. And this was not unheard of in this day. Not even kings. There were many leaders and many rulers that might have had multiple wives. But folks, I'm here to tell you something that we have to live different than the way that the world lives. And God spoke to this issue. When you go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, we find that God spoke to the children of Israel way before they ever had a king. I mean, when you go to Deuteronomy, you're still in the lifetime of Moses. And God, knowing that one day they would have a king, he warned the kings out of all the things he could say towards a king who's yet to be born. You know what he said of the kings? He said, there are three things that you are not to accumulate to yourselves. When you have a king, make sure there are three things that that king does not accumulate to himself. The first one was, he said, do not let him accumulate horses. All that was simply saying was, you know what? 
The Bible over and over says some trust in chariots, right? Some trust in horses. But what are we supposed to trust in? We're supposed to trust in the name of the Lord our God. We are supposed to not be confident in our army, in our politics, in our government. None of those things are where we are supposed to put all of our confidence. Our confidence is in the Lord. And he said, do not accumulate for yourself horses. And we find that David over and over after battles, remember, he was he was he was handicapping the horses. Rather than putting them into his own army and building this army of chariots and horses, David was literally doing exactly what that verse told him to do. The second thing was, it says, do not let the king accumulate for himself concubines and wives. What does it sound like David is doing from the very beginning? He has a problem. He has an issue. He has a sin. That rather than dealing with it, he's going to act on it. And then the third thing was, it says of the kings, that they should not accumulate for themselves gold and silver. And again, you see David being obedient to that. They would go into battles and they would have huge amounts of money that they would consider a spoil. And rather than keeping it for himself, he would put it into the treasury of the Lord. And we may look at that and we may say, well, hey, two out of three ain't bad. Let's see at the end of this chapter if that's the approach that we should take, that two out of three ain't bad. Because folks, let me tell you something. This one thing will become the giant that slays David. It will change the trajectory of his life. And while we want to say, you know what? Some sins don't matter. And at least if I have some sins, it's not a lot of sins. Or my sin's not as bad as their sins. Folks, never forget, sin still does what sin has always done. It steals, it kills, it destroys. And folks, it is a constant battle. It is a constant enemy to us. It's a constant threat. You see, what happened to King David was that he has an issue with women and he keeps looking at women. And what the Bible tells us in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 15, it says that sin, guess where it begins? It begins in the mind. And David, it's, I mean, listen, David can't help that he walked out on his roof, right? Well, there's a couple things going on in the life of David. Number one, he shouldn't have been on the roof because he should have been at war. He should have been with his army. He should have been doing what kings do. I don't know why he was there and why he chose not to go out. I don't, I, but here he is really in the wrong place at the wrong time. He should have been somewhere else, but he walks out on the top of his roof. He can't help that his roof, his palace is larger than everything around him, and he's looking down, and he sees a woman who is nude bathing. Now, folks, we all understand that that gets your attention, right? It doesn't matter who was standing there, man, woman, whoever. If there's a naked person on a roof, you tend to go, naked person. But you don't have to... You understand in that moment, you have choices, right? In that moment, you either walk away or you linger. And you see, there was this giant that had been in David. He obviously has an issue with sexual desires and lust, and he has brought to himself all these wives and concubines. And like every other thing that isn't God that we try to put into our life to bring satisfaction to us, do you realize that it never satisfies and you never have enough? 
And you think, this will satisfy. It's not enough. This will satisfy. It's not enough. And here he is. He's got all these wives. He's got all these concubines. But he looks out there and it says, I mean, in the Hebrew, it says she was fine. All right. I don't know how else to describe it. Extremely beautiful. And he said, I want you to go get her. And I want you to bring her to me. The Bible never tells us anywhere to play with sin. You see, the real issue that we have here is that David was living the way most of us are living under the lie that, you know what, sin isn't a big deal. Sin isn't that dangerous. I can have a few sins and it not really wreak havoc in my life. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, most of us, when I was student minister, and really adults are no different. I mean, I don't want to pick on the kids because... Adults are as bad, if not worse. They used to always ask me the question, Aaron, how far is too far? You know what they're really asking is, how much can I get away with? Right? And the Bible gives us nothing of that. The Bible never tries to say, well, here's sin. Let's creep up on it. Let's nuance it a million ways so that you can go as far as you want to go, because the reality is, if I teach them to get close to the line, they're going to cross the line. It may take them months. They may grapple with the guilt and the shame, but they're finally going to cross it. And then once they cross it, because they've been living on the line, they just pick up the line and they just move it. And how hard is it to go back over the line again? nothing at that point you grapple and you wrestle with moving the line it's it's not sex and then something else happens and they go further and they just want to pick up the line and they they move it again and now they'll cross two lines like it's nothing do you see what's happening we have forgotten that god said flee from sin Flee from youthful lust. Treat it like what it is. It has the danger and the potential to destroy you, to hurt you, to ruin you. This is a giant that can slay you. And for all of us in this room, the giants may look different. It may not be lust for us. So I'm telling you, for most of us in this room, that is a huge one in this culture. That's a huge one in the church in America today. But for some of us, it's drunkenness and alcoholism. For some of us, it's the, the drugs that we're not willing to put down. Even in following Jesus, we've clung to them. We're holding on to them. For some of us, it's anger that belittles and crushes the ones that we love. We've just gotten to the place that we've just accepted it. We've crossed the line so many times that we don't even realize the line is there anymore. The problem with sin, the three things I really want to show you and we've talked about is that idle hands, you've heard this, are the devil's workshop. Most of us aren't doing the things that Christ has asked us to do where kings are supposed to be out battling with the armies. Instead, he's just sitting back at the palace. I want you to think about us as dads. How easy is it for us to sit on a couch, to sit in a recliner, right? I mean, we can relate to this. 
You don't think there are better things for all of us to be doing in a given day to raise our children, to love our wives? To I mean, you, you see where I'm going? But we choose lesser things over and over and over. In fact, we live in a culture that we think that the greatest objective of our life is to go find pleasure. Well, I want to challenge you in that. Because that's not what the Scripture says, that we're not going after pleasure. We should be going after purpose. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, but folks, when we don't live for a higher purpose. If our purpose is Netflix, do you see what you're going to miss and, and how much is going to go right by you? If your purpose is your job to make money that one day your children will fight over and hate each other over, do you see how you've just wasted time if you've made them good students of, of biology but not students of the word of god do you realize that that you're not putting your focus in the right places in your life and with all that idle time and when you're wandering around not doing the things that matter in life you are susceptible to these sins and they're going to slay you Folks, it comes out of a love for Jesus that we know Him and we love Him and we worship Him and we know what His Word says and we hear clearly the calling that is on our life and our objective is to fulfill that calling every moment of every day so that our eyes stay focused on the things that matter and not on the things that don't. Many of us, we get trapped right there. We can't figure out why our flesh is going crazy. Well, is it maybe what we watch, what we hear, what we do? Is it the relationships that we are in? You know, it's like an alcoholic sitting in a bar saying, I can't figure out why I can't quit drinking. You got to get out of the bar. You got to get out of certain relationships. If they're not what they should be, you've got to flee from the evil that is coming to slay you. Some of you need filters on your computers. You say filters are a pain. I, I get it. I know. The filters that I have on mine, sometimes, literally, like a Fox News story, it just says, you need approval to view this. And I'm thinking, what in the world? And you know what? It'd be easier to go tell Melanie, let's just get this stuff off of here so I don't have to come find you. I'm at the office. I'm trying to look at something. I came and look at it. You know what I have to do? I got to go find her and I got to hand her the phone and she's got to put in four digits. You can say, well, man, you're not much of a man if you need your wife to listen. I know this, I'm not a better man than David, most likely. And if David can fall, then I guarantee you I can. It's the same reason I don't go out with women for any reason whatsoever. I don't go to dinner. I'm not going to find myself alone with them in the office after hours. Folks, many of us, we just don't have the guardrails in our life that we need. The accountability that we need. And we want to keep telling ourselves, I'm stronger, I'm better. And the reality is, listen, we all need accountability. We all need the guardrails in our life. We all need to be aware that, you know what, sin is constantly trying to attack us. And we need to live like there's a real enemy out there. Because here's the truth, it's easier to avoid temptation 
than to resist sin. Let that sink in a second. It is easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. That means we need to attack it as early and often as we can, these things that are destroying us. Let me put it to you in simple terms. Again, youth ministry, it was the easiest way I knew how to tell the children what I meant. The time to figure out your purity is not when you're sitting in the backseat of a car, is it? If you're in the backseat of the car with the opposite sex, you're already done. You just don't know it yet. You don't put yourself in that position. If you've committed to date somebody, you put the guardrails up and you stand by those guardrails. Nothing good is going to happen at 2.30 in the morning. There's nowhere to be. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, you see the simplicity of it, right? It's harder to have an affair if you never go to lunch, dinner, or sit in a room with another woman who's not your wife or a man who's not your husband. Listen, if you never do those things, do you realize that's easier to avoid those temptations and resist those temptations than to put yourself in a position where you're having to resist sin because you're right there next to it? Folks, we got to change the way that we think. And we got to realize the way that God looks at sin and the danger that it gives to all of us. It's interesting because both David and Bathsheba were wrong in what occurred here. It's not one or the other. You see, David had a moment where he could have walked away and he could have sent a servant to say, listen, you need to quit bathing on your roof. Instead, he sent a servant to say, hey, why don't you come over and meet the king? David is clearly at fault. But I want you to understand, Bathsheba, you think she's stupid? You think she doesn't realize? I mean, it's just common sense, right? If you happen to live on the highest high rise, okay, maybe then you can bathe on your rooftop. But if you're bathing on your rooftop and you have a one-story home, what's the issue? Anybody with a two-story, three-story, four-story home, guess what they can do? They can watch you bathe. You think she didn't know what she was doing? Do you see any resistance? Folks, the truth is, let me me do a little side note for everybody. This is one of those things, I'm just going to take a little pastor privilege here. Because this is one of the things that drives me crazy. Y'all kill me on Facebook, man, because I know I have the right to remain silent, but very often I don't have the ability. And I want to. I'm trying. I'm learning. I'm growing. I see these debates over the way we dress, and it just drives me nuts. Who's wrong when a man is lusting? Is it the man who's lusting? Or is maybe is it the woman who dresses so scantily that when she walks in the room, every head turns, male, female, young, old? And I hear the debate that, you know what, we're, 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 we're sexualizing women. No, women are sexualizing themselves. And men, you have a responsibility to learn how to walk away. You have a responsibility to learn how to turn off a television. You have a responsibility to learn how to turn off a radio. You have a responsibility 
to change your calendar and to cancel an appointment that you know isn't what it needs to be. You are responsible for the choices that you make. But women, you have a responsibility too. Moms, when you put words on your 16-year-old daughter's rear end in the shorts that they wear, what do you think is happening? Listen, I'm the pastor. I try my best to put it distance. Anything that could make me want to lust or do anything. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who walks in. When they got words on their rear end, everybody's going to look where? Is that not common sense? You say, well, Aaron, that's just your, your opinion. It is not my opinion. The Bible says that we are to live modestly, and it speaks directly to us and says that, you know what? It's not the outer beauty that we are to be trying to display and show because the outer beauty, let me tell you who that's for. That's for your husband. That's for your wife, men. It's not for anybody and everybody else. It is for that person that God has given to you in marriage. You say, well, I'm not married. Well, you will be one day. And that is meant to be theirs, not everybody else's. And men, we have to be careful what we look at, don't we? But women, we got to be careful of the way we are looking. It's, it's not one or the other. It, it is both and. I'm not saying men are fully accountable. I'm not saying women are the problem and fully accountable. I'm telling you that each of us have a responsibility, especially in this culture, to be careful. So that when people see us, they don't actually see us. You know what they're supposed to see? They're supposed to see Christ. Let your beauty be that beauty that is from the inside. Yeah, I knew that would be popular. All right. Number two, sin is always destructive and displeasing. It's a constant threat. But secondly, it's always destructive and it's displeasing. The thing that is so brutal about what went on in David's life at this moment is that along with us and David in this moment, we all sin with our eyes wide open. We want to say that, you know what, it's an accident. It's a mistake. I didn't realize what I was doing. That's not true. Very rarely in these major sins is that actually true. It's been happening slowly over time as we compromise and compromise and compromise. We get to this moment like this and we don't know what to do and we don't know how to fight it because it's been coming. We've been setting ourselves up for this very disaster. And when it gets there, make no mistake that most times we're in it eyes wide open, meaning that we know exactly what we're doing. We actually know what it will cost us if we're caught. Is that true? We just suppress it. We just don't want to think about it. We think we'll get away with it. We think no one's going to know. And we justify and we say, well, you know what? I'm just miserable. All these wives are driving me crazy and they're not just doing it for me anymore, so I need another one, right? It's just lies. And the reality is, when he said, hey, who is that woman over there? Remember what his servants came back and said? 
uh, King David, you need to know that this is the daughter of so-and-so. And not only that, she is the wife. You think David didn't hear that? You think he somehow missed that? Most sexual sin, and we won't want to act like, you know, we're two people running down the road and suddenly all our clothes fell off and somehow we had sex and then we're all standing there going, how did that happen? Is that how that happens? Anybody ever see that happen? It doesn't happen like that. You know what happens? We make deliberate choices. Eyes wide open, making the choices. And when he heard, I mean, listen, it was one thing if he thought, well, you know, I don't even know who this woman is. Maybe she's single. Maybe I can make her another wife. I don't know what he was thinking, but at the moment she's, he, he heard, this is Uriah's wife, the Hittite. And then knowing, where is he? He's out there fighting. How good of a man is Uriah? He was good enough that when David got his wife pregnant, he wouldn't even go home. You know what David was trying to do, right? David was thinking, if I can get him to go home and sleep with his wife, it's the same timetable. Everybody will add up nine months and they'll think it's me, I mean him and not me. And so two or three times he tries to get this man to go sleep with his wife, but he says, listen, on your soul, king, I would not do such a thing as to go home while my buddies are out there fighting. Again, a chance for David to do something right, and he blows right through it. And he makes up his mind in that moment, I have no choice in his mind. He had a choice. Guess what his choice could have been? He could have confessed it right then. He could have repented right then. He could have said, this has gone far enough and I, I can't murder a man. But you know what? His desperation to cover and to hide, he puts into plan a way for Uriah to die. He basically writes, I mean, think about this. He writes the general of his army and says, I want you to kill one of your soldiers. Could you imagine? Put him on the front line, and whenever the battle gets fierce, back up and leave him there stranded by himself so that he'll die. Makes you wonder a lot about Joab too, doesn't it? Don't think Joab doesn't know what's going on. Listen, don't think it's hidden. It's not. The servants in the castle know. Joab knows. But he just keeps going. Into his own destruction. He knows it's going to destroy him. But he lies to himself and says, no, it's not. The devil's still whispering. If you eat of that tree, will it really kill you? <laughs> Isn't that what he's telling himself? Could you really lose everything? I mean, you're the king. Is it really a big deal? Go ahead and eat. Take the fruit. Doesn't matter. It's no different than the garden. It's the same thing. Folks, Satan never shows us his cards. He's never going to tell you what will happen when you bite into that forbidden fruit. Let me tell you, he doesn't tell the drunk that that drink is going to destroy your life and ruin your family. He doesn't tell the person who's 
sleeping with someone that's not their spouse, even before marriage or certainly adultery after marriage, he doesn't say to them, hey, you know what? Your sexual activity is going to lead possibly to pregnancy, possibly to disease, possibly even to death. He never tells the drug addict that, you know what? You walk through this door and this habit's going to have you forever. The devil may lie about sin, but God does not. He said from the very beginning, the wage of sin is what? Death. Sin always destroys. It's a thief. It steals, kills. It destroys. It always has. It always will. God has always made it crystal clear. There's a saying out there, I couldn't track down who said it. I believe it seems to be anonymous. It was attributed to different people like Kay Arthur or Ravi Zacharias or different ones, but I don't know that it was from any of them. But it speaks well, and it's worth writing down for you today because it is a truth that so lines up with Scripture right here and what we see. The quote was, the sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay, and sin will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. Do you see those things happening in the life of David? This is what sin does. It sears the conscience. It makes sin easier and easier and easier. And just like I said, you draw the lines and you say, I won't cross it and you cross it. I'll draw the line and you cross it and you keep doing it. And it just becomes easier and easier. Let me go ahead and tell you why that happens. It's because sin is a snare. It is a trap. You think you can touch it and walk away. You might get away with that once or twice, but you're not going to get away with it forever. And see, there again, that's the lie. We get close, it doesn't seem to hurt us. We touch, it doesn't seem to hurt us. And we don't recognize that, listen, there will be a reckoning. There will be a day. There will be a moment when the sin will be found out. There will be a moment when you will start to understand the consequence of that sin. But it takes us further, and it takes us further, and it takes us further. And now, David, think about this. In the matter of days... He has committed adultery and he has killed a man. It always takes you farther than you expected to go. It keeps you longer than you intended to stay. Of course it does because it's a trap. It's how it works. Sin is never satisfied. This giant that wants to slay you, it's never satisfied. It's never enough. If your giant is greed, it's never enough. You can have a dollar you want to. I can give you a million, you want two million. I can give you a billion, and you want two billion. Because it's never enough. This thing that has become your God, this thing that you have said, I will obey it rather than Him, rather than Jesus, that thing becomes a God. And listen, it's a God that will never satisfy you. Didn't matter how many wives David had. He wasn't satisfied, was he? It always keeps you longer than you intended to stay. It takes you deeper and deeper 
into death and destruction, tightening its grip on your heart and on your life. David didn't realize it, but it was imprisoning him and taking him further and further away from the Lord. Sin costs you more than you ever expected to pay. Let me just make this one simple. David paid for his moment of pleasure with a lifetime of pain. There's the lie the devil gives you. Seek pleasure. Pleasure will satisfy you. Doesn't matter if it's godly. Doesn't matter what God says, what God thinks, what God wants. You know what? In this moment of your life, you just need to feel better. You just need pleasure. We seek pleasure like it's a God. And I'm telling you, this one moment of pleasure would bring a lifetime. We're going to see it in the coming weeks. It brings a lifetime of pain. The rest of this book is going to be the lifetime of pain that is paid because of this one moment of pleasure. Say, how bad is it going to get? Bad. Solomon wasn't chosen to be king because he was the firstborn son of David. Four sons in front of him would die. because of this. You know that saying, right? The sins of the father pass to the children, right? You're going to watch it. You're going to see it. Puritan by the name of John Owen, I think says it best. I think he sums up this whole thing. You ready? Write this down. It's so simple. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You better be killing sin. Through the power of Christ, you better believe His promises. You better grab hold of the gospel that teaches us that He doesn't just forgive us of our sins and tell us, hey, keep sinning. Grace abounds, right? Keep sinning. It doesn't matter how you live. Keep sinning. Keep, keep walking the old path. You don't have to become new. That's a lie. As much as He died to forgive you, He died to free you. And if He's freed you, then walk as a man or a woman who's free. He's freed you from sin, not to sin. He hasn't freed you so you could go back to where you were. He freed you so that you could live holy. And some of you in this room, you just haven't grasped that yet. You just, you've refused to grab hold of that. You just want to believe. I just need to sit my butt in church. I just need to give. I just need to be baptized. I just need to do all these outward religious things. And it doesn't matter how I live because Jesus will figure all that out. That is not what he says. You now have the power of Christ in you to live a holy life so that he can say to you and mean it, be holy as I am holy. And when you gravitate to anything less than that, you've bought the lie. Destruction is coming. And you're going to be struggling because you're not going to be able to figure out why you're not prospering, which leads us to the third thing. 
It's a constant threat, we said. It is always, always destructive and displeasing to God. I mean, that's, that's the end of the chapter 27. That's what it says. But the thing that David had done, it was evil. Other translations say it was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. Didn't matter what anybody else said. God had something to say about it. And he said, it displeases me. And thirdly, guess what? Sin cannot be covered up. That's the other lie. Nobody will know. Yes, they will. Nobody will ever find out. Yes, they will. Folks, you may not want to deal with it or grapple with it. Let me tell you who the God is that you serve. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. This God that we serve, He sees everything that you do. Literally, we were in Psalm 139 uh, last Wednesday. I meet in the room behind you every Wednesday. If you want to dive into the Bible, get in there with me. Shameless plug. We have a great Bible study. We just take the Bible and we run through it. If you're not doing anything on Wednesdays, 6.30, be in there. We just went through Psalm 139 last week. Just opened it and went right through it. What a reminder we need in the midst of a text like this because it says that, you know what? God scrutinizes our path. You think he's distant. You think he's not paying attention. You're wondering, does he even care? Does he even see me? Oh, to the point that with everything else going on in the universe, he is everywhere and he knows everything all at one time. And it says that he is literally scrutinizing your path. He's behind you. He's in front of you. He has his hand above you. It says things like, he knew your thoughts from afar Meaning, you think no one else knows what you're thinking. You're wrong. God knows what you're thinking. He says that He knows the words that are on your tongue before you ever speak them. Where can I go? How can I flee from this God? He says, go to the highest mountain. Good luck, He's there. Go to the heavens. Good luck, He's there. Go to the depths of the sea. Good luck, He's there. Go to Sheol. Go to hell. Go to the grave. It doesn't matter. Guess what? He's there. Why do we try to hide from a God who knows everything and that we cannot hide from if we wanted to? Jesus' call to us was never leave me. What was his call? Get away from me. He always said, come. See, even in our sin, what's he saying? Come. Be transparent. Be honest. Confess it to me. Let's repent of this thing. I want you to come to me because I have the power to take this away. I have a power to give you life. The resurrection power that raised me from the dead is the power that lives inside of you and you can have life. That's the glory of the gospel is we can be changed. But to do that, what do we have to do? We have to come. But I'm broken. Good. He's near the brokenhearted. feel like I'm just at the end of it all. I've got nothing left. That's good. A smoldering wick, you know what he'll never do? He'll never snuff it out. But he sees me and he knows how horrible I am. 
he indeed does. And he said that while you were yet a sinner, that's when he died for you. And he doesn't leave you there. But how many of us in this room are choosing to stay there? We can make excuses about our mouths and the way we talk, our bodies and the way that we sin. But I want you to make no mistake, it will always be revealed. When people find themselves under the grip and control of their sins, they're going to try every method to keep their sin covered and hidden. But that is not God's way. God's way is openness and honesty and repentance. Man's way is deception. Folks, when I say it will always be revealed, you say, well, that's cruel. That's not cruel. He loves you enough not to leave you where you are. You can get mad all you want at God for opening the door and the window for people to see into your life. I pray every day, my children, if they knew it, man, and God's done it over and over. You know what my prayer is most for my children out of all the prayers that I pray? Lord, expose their sin. We need to pray that for ourselves. Because I know that of all the things in the world that I worry about the most, what I should be worried about the most is the sin that's in their life and in my life. I can't control a hurricane. I can't control a government. I can't listen. Those things are going to be outside of us. I'm talking about the things that get us or the things that are inside of us. And I pray for their hearts and their souls. It always keeps us from prospering. When we cover up our sin, it's always going to be revealed. There's, I mean... Jesus said it plainly. He said, what you do in secret one day will be screamed from the rooftops. Let that daunting thought seep into your soul. How many times did Jesus show us that very thing where the disciples would be sinning in their, even in their thoughts and their minds and He would call them out? Why are you so worried about being the greatest? You have a power issue. Let me tell you what the greatest is. It's the person that serves, the one who's last. Remember all that? They didn't even say anything. They just thought it. How many times did Jesus approach like the woman at the well where she tries to play smooth with Jesus, like, let me make it about something that's not me. So Jesus, why do the Jews worship in two different places? And which is, you know, they're coming up with all these arguments, right? And Jesus just looks at her and he cuts to the quick. He's like, let's talk about the five husbands and the one you're with now that's not even a husband. Because you see, what was killing that woman wasn't the argument over where we worship. <laughs> it was her sin, wasn't it? And because God loves you, He's going to root it out. He's going to expose it. Why not repent? Sin must be confessed and forsaken. It's always going to be revealed. It always keeps us from prospering, and it has to be confessed. When we talk about prospering, I'm always amazed at the number of people who can't figure out that they're standing in the rain and they can't figure out why they're wet. 
And I've been there. I don't know why my marriage is so horrible. I just want a good marriage. And then you start diving in, and then it's like, I mean, sometimes you don't have to say anything. You just sit in a room and listen. And you can, you're just thinking, man, if, I mean, number one, half the time I'm thinking, if I talk to Melanie like that, man, she'd jack me up. There ain't, I'd be in trouble. But you can hear the selfishness, and you can hear the anger, and you can hear the resentment, and you can hear the unforgiveness, and you can hear, and, and, and we're standing there, and we're wanting to ask the question, why am I all wet standing in the rain? Well, listen, God has given us a way to be blessed, hasn't he? A way for healing to occur. He's given us a way for us to have life, everlasting life. We're not stuck in the death that sin tries to deal us and, and that we accept with our own choices. He says we're not stuck there. And many believers, they know what's right. Most counseling, I'm not going to tell them one thing they don't already know. It's not an issue of me coming up with something that's going to be like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. What do they need me for? To just push them to obey what they already know is right and what is good. And so they have all the answers, and they're standing there in the rain with an umbrella. And they can't figure out why they're soaking wet. And we ask God, why won't you prosper me? Why won't you prosper my marriage? Why won't you? And, and the whole while, the whole while, he's saying, I've told you what is right and what is good, and you won't do it, and what you really want is me to bless you anyways. I'm going to close with Proverbs 28, 13. Memorize this this week. It'll do you a lot of good. It did me a lot of good to recount it. It's one I had really memorized, and I kind of revisited it this week and got it back up to full speed in my mind and in my heart. Because Proverbs 28, verse 13, I think speaks well to exactly what we're talking about here. It, sin has to be confessed, and it has to be forsaken. Listen to the difference in the way that we live here. He says, He who conceals his transgression... will not. Will not prosper. Think about the ramifications for your family, your children, your life, the life of your spouse, the life of this church. When we hang on to all this sin, listen to what it says. It says, he who tries to conceal his transgressions, he will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I would dare say that this is one of the verses in the Bible that is hardest for us to believe. And you say, well, no, I believe it. No, you believe it on face value, just like I believe it on face value. We want to say, I agree with the words, but you realize how hard it is to put our faith in God about that statement. Nobody's asking you to come confess in front of this church and bear. Listen, we ain't got time for all y'all to come up here and bear your entire soul. But you got a spouse that needs you to. 
You've got children that need you to. You've got friends that need you to. You need accountability. You need to stop walking this journey alone. You need to get before the Lord and those that you've hurt and you need to confess and you need to forsake. You need to admit it and you need to turn from it. And God's power, with God's strength, with God's people. Listen, there's some of you, you need to come talk to the pastor. You need to talk to your connect group leader. You need to be honest in your D group about where you are in this journey, in this walk, and you need to start taking serious the sin that is inside of you trying to slay you. And I believe that God will meet you with compassion. In church, we need to be a church that, you know what, we don't act shocked when people are sinning. We don't act shocked when people are struggling. It never fails to amaze me how many people in the church, they're just like, I cannot believe that. So look, look at your own life. You can believe it because you've probably done it. People don't need our shock. You know what they need? They need our compassion and our love. They need to hear us say, hey, get up, go, sin no more. We've got to speak the truth, but it's got to be done in love and with compassion. Because if we can't be honest in this room, where in the world can we be honest? And we've got to be that church that you know what, people can come and talk to us and they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt if I cover my transgressions, I will not prosper. But if I confess <laughs> and I turn, I will be met with compassion from God and from God's people.